0: Jonah Historically Regarded How Herman Melville describes the story in his masterpiece, Moby Dick I've talked and written in other places about my pleasure in reading Melvin's classic, Moby Dick How the work at the time was a critical failure, mocked by the critics of the age, which was the 1850s For me, it's an astonishing work. It has left as great an impression on me as any book, ancient or modern, with which I can compare it. Although published in 1851, its imaginative prose is accessible from its famous first words from the narrator, Call me Ishmael. If you read on, you will find not just a story about a man who chases a whale but an epic also described as a symbolic book dealing with the existential human issues of obsession, morality and redemption. Melville plays with the reader, sometimes with prose concealing near pure Shakespearean blank verse, sometimes with gentle irony, as in the brief piece I have chosen to illustrate this point. It's chapter 83, occupying no more than the pages 351-2 to in my dog-eared edition. It's titled, Jonah, Historically Regarded. In it, Melville, in the voice of Ishmael, describes how the famed whaling community of Nantucket and the little village of Sag Harbour treated the Jonah myth. The spokesman, himself named after the village, expresses doubts as to the veracity of the story of Jonah. Ishmael appears to refute Sagharba's claims, but his words instead expose the unconvincing nature of the arguments. They also indicate the negative reaction to the book as being anti-Christian and sympathetic to views of some of the savages which he eulogises. Jonah Historically Regarded Reference was made to the historical story of Jonah and the whale in the preceding chapter. Now, some Nantucketers rather distrust this historical story of Jonah and the whale. But then there were some sceptical Greeks and Romans who, standing out from the orthodox pagans of their times, equally doubted the story of Hercules and the whale, and Arian and Dolphin. And yet... Their doubting those traditions did not make those traditions one whit the less facts for all that. One old Sag Harbour whaleman's chief reason for questioning the Hebrew story was this. He had one of these quaint, old-fashioned Bibles embellished with curious, unscientific plates, one of which represented Jonah's whale with two spouts in its head, a peculiarity only true with the species of whale, the right whale, and the varieties of that order, concerning which the fishermen have this saying, a penny roll would choke him. His swallow is so very small. But to this, Bishop Jebb's anticipative answer is ready. It is not necessary, hints the bishop, that we consider Jonah to be tuned in the whale's body, but as temporarily lodged in some part of his mouth. And this seems reasonable enough in the good bishop for truly the right whale's mouth would accommodate a couple of whist tables and comfortably seat all the players. Possibly, too, Jonah might have ensconced himself in a hollow tooth. But on second thoughts, the right whale is toothless. Another reason which Sag Harbor, he went by that name, urged for his want of faith in this matter of the prophet was something obscurely in reference to his incarcerated body and the whale's gastric juices but this objection likewise falls to the ground because a German exegesis supposed that Jonah must have taken refuge in the floating body of a dead whale even as the French soldiers in the Russian campaign turned their dead horses into tents and crawled into them besides it has been divined by other continental commentators that when Joseph was thrown overboard from the Joppa ship, he straightway effected his escape to another vessel nearby, some vessel with a whale for a figurehead, and, I would add, possibly called the whale, as some crafter nowadays christened the shark, the gull, the eagle. Nor have there been those wanting learned exegesis who have opined the whale mentioned in the book of Jonah merely meant a life preserver, an inflated bag of wind, which the endangered prophet swam to and so was saved from a watery doom. Poor Sag Harbour, therefore, seems worsted all round. But it's still another reason for his want of faith. It was this, if I remember right. Jonah was swallowed by the whale in the Mediterranean Sea and after three days he was vomited up somewhere within three days' journey of Nineveh, a city on the Tigris. Very much more than three days' journey across from the nearest point in the Mediterranean coast. How is that? But there was no other way for the whale to land the prophet within that short distance of Nineveh. Yes, he might have carried him round by the way of Cape of Good Hope. But not to speak of the passage through the whole end of the Mediterranean and another passage up the Persian Gulf and Red Sea, such a supposition would involve a complete circumnavigation of all Africa in three days, not to speak of the Tigris waters near the site of Nineveh being too shallow for any whale to swim in anyway. Besides, this idea of Jonah's weathering the Cape of Good Hope at so early a day would wrest the honour of the discovery of that great headland from Bartholomew Diaf, its reputed discoverer, and so make modern history a lie. But all these foolish arguments of Olsak Harbour only evinced his foolish pride of reason, a thing still more reprehensible to him, seeing that he had but little learning except what he had picked up from the sun and the sea. I say it only shows his foolish, impious pride and abominable, devilish rebellion against the reverend clergy. For by a Portuguese Catholic priest This very idea of Jonah's going to Nineveh via the Cape of Good Hope was advanced as a signal magnification of the general miracle. And so it was. Besides, to this day, the highly enlightened Turks devoutly believe in the historical story of Jonah. And some three centuries ago, an English traveller in old Harris's voyages speaks of a Turkish mosque built in honour of Jonah in which Musk was a miraculous lamp that burned without any oil.